And welcome this afternoon, this warm, balmy afternoon. Temperatures in the low to mid-70s, Dan Torres. I know. Can you imagine it? In November, Buzz. How amazing is it? I know. It's great. It, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, I, don't ask me why. I famously have a memory for first snows sometimes. I think it was four years ago and three years ago, respectively, that it snowed on November 7th, then on November 2nd, we got like six inches of snow, mm. um, at least here in Nashville we did. And um, I, so here we are now, and I, I know about climate. I also know the price of home heating oil is so expensive right now, and in, in a perverse way, this balmy weather is just really going to be helpful to a lot of people who are going to have a hard time staying warm this this winter, you know? Right. Yeah. The prices are very high indeed across the country. So, yeah, it's going to be a shocker to, I think, a lot of people when when yeah, December it, and January get, come around for sure. Well, before uh, we turn to our next guest, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today for a couple of reasons. Um, and that's Paul Mark, a representative Paul Mark, who's running for Senate. But before that, I just wanted to ask you, what's going on with Panorama this Saturday? Oh, I think you're going to like it, Buzz. So at 7 a.m., Sarah and I are interviewing Grace Banish, who people might not know of, but is actually the town clerk of Shutesbury, small town out, out here. You know the area well, don't you, Buzz? And she, sure do. she counts the votes, Buzz. So we're hearing from a local who is actually counting, counting ballots. And you'd be interested in some of the stories he has, she has to share because uh, it's, it's pretty astonishing some of the things that she has to do uh, when people start filing uh, uh, freedom of information requests about tabulations of votes. And uh, it's very interesting to hear it all. So 7 a.m. here on WHMP. Once again, I live in beautiful Ashfield. I'm very familiar with what our town clerk does, and I will be counting ballots along with um, the cast of regulars every year who volunteer to do it on Tuesday night. But um, <clears throat> we fortunately have not been beleaguered with, with that. That sounds, I'm, I'll be very interested in hearing what she has to say. And speaking of elections, we have Representative Paul Mark with us who. Uh, is on the ballot to become senator to um, represent how many of the towns here in the Hill Towns, Paul? 57 cities and towns, 11 in Franklin, 9 in Hampshire. 57, 11 <laughs> in the most important county, and the rest somewhere else, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I ideally, every one of the towns will say, Paul represents Ashfield, and then 56 other towns I never heard of. <laughs> That's exactly right. Right. So um, yesterday, the Globe is very interesting this morning. Um, it reported that the Department of Revenue reported $2.4 billion that it took in during this past month, October. It's 14% higher than expected. And then finally, I think something we first talked to you about way back in July, this um, economic development package. I think finally we could put fiscal 2022 to bed. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, that, that's correct. That that economic development bill, it has changed significantly due to those uh, tax cuts that people weren't expecting. The tax, the tax give back that people weren't really expecting that wasn't on the radar, many of us. Um, with that, those payments are starting to go out now where people are going to get a direct payment back from the state of Massachusetts, equivalent to, I think, about 13% of the taxes you paid last year. And so because of that, the economic development bill is scaled down a bit, but nonetheless went to the governor's desk yesterday and is around $3 billion and will finally, once it's signed, uh, will officially close the books on fiscal year 2022, which uh, is supposed yeah, to happen. According to the Globe, it's $3.8 billion. Um, 3.8, yeah. They said... You had an informal session in the House yesterday. What could you explain what that is? There was no debate or discussion, just but we got the you got the report and then passed it. How does that work? So, under the state constitution, we have to meet in the House and the Senate every seventy-two hours. That that's that's a rule. It, 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 in perpetuity, we must always meet every third day. And 
because of that, we have they have the same thing in Congress. In Congress, they call it pro forma session. In the state house, we call it an informal session. And what that means is it's a session where there's not a recorded roll call vote, and that is dependent on unanimous consent and the requirement that nobody asks for a quorum. And so with this bill that we have been working on for months, maybe even over a year in some form, uh, finally coming out, everyone was happy enough with what came out that nobody, Republicans, Democrats, or the one independent, none of us, none of us objected. We offered unanimous consent because it's just, it's important to get that money out the door and close the, the, the books on, on last fiscal year. So yeah, it, it went through the House and the Senate yesterday and uh, we'll see what the governor does. If the governor ends up vetoing it, then we will have to go back in for a recorded vote because you cannot override him without a recorded vote. Yeah, well, I mean, the governor was big on it. I, I know that there was a, a fairly small, well, fairly small, I think it was like a $100 million difference between the Senate version and the House version of of this and, and how much was going to go back to taxpayers. Um, but I guess there was a, a compromise. And I know that according to the Globe, now I understand it was introduced, approved, no debate, but enacted. And I always wondered what an informal session yeah, that, that's all it means. It's, it's not a roll call. And so the reason for the no debate is there was no objections. It's, 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 again, if, if this had been a standalone bill that was just proposed, yeah, there's no way it would have passed that way. But where this is something we, we all voted in the House and in the Senate on this back at the uh, very end of July. And so we've just all been waiting. And uh, some of the items that we were hoping for have been not included, but we expect will come back in January. So but what, what did make it through, I think, is really exciting, and there's a lot of good stuff for Franklin County and statewide that I think is going to be helpful. Um, let's take a quick break here, uh, Rep. I, yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on the Afternoon Buzz. Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Cutting the ice and sticks pounding boards. The slap of the puck and a ping off the post. The chirp of the whistle and the blaring of the horn. Hockey is here. Tune in for all the sounds of the season right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. This bona fide minute is brought to you by New England Orthopedic Surgeons of Western Mass. Your shoulder. It's one of the largest and most complex joints in your body, consisting of the bones of the upper arm, shoulder blade, and collarbone, and the rotator cuff, a collection of muscles and tendons that not only surround the shoulder, but give it support and a wide range of motion. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Competitive hockey and basketball players can sustain shoulder injuries such as shoulder separation and dislocation and tears of ligaments and tendons from sliding into the boards, falling on the ice or court, or direct contact. But shoulder sprains, strains, and tears can also occur in us regular folks at Sunday pickup games, during dreaded winter shoveling, or even through wear and tear over time. So whether you're a professional athlete, weekend warrior, or someone in between, you can trust the team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons to give you the best bona fide care around. Visit neortho.com to schedule your appointment today. Meet with Mira Vista virtually and make your next career move a reality. On Monday, November 7th, Mira Vista Behavioral Health Center is hosting a virtual hiring event for RNs and LPNs. Mira Vista offers a great working environment, competitive wages and benefits, and sign-on bonuses up to $15,000. A variety of full-time, part-time, and per diem shifts are available. Join a caring team of professionals dedicated to making a life-changing difference for individuals affected by mental health and substance abuse. For details, visit miravistabhc.care. 
Google is rolling out new search features that are designed to make it easier for shoppers to save money this holiday season. When users search for a product, they'll get price insights, new labels for coupons and promotions, and side-by-side -side price comparisons. Daylight savings time ends this weekend with clocks in most of the U.S. rolling back one hour at 2 a.m. Sunday. However, some confusion may exist on that count. In March, the Senate voted to keep the U.S. on daylight savings time all year round, but the measure died in the House. Better check your freezer. Foster Farms is recalling approximately 148,000 pounds of fully cooked frozen chicken breast patties. The product may be contaminated with extraneous materials, specifically hard clear pieces of plastic. They were sold at retailers nationwide, including Costco. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with Representative Paul Mark, um, I dare say soon to be Senator Paul Mark. Um, Paul, I, I, I wanted to ask you, so this, this, I think it's 1986, this law from the 80s that was enacted in order to uh, dampen um, the damage done by an increase in taxes at the time. The compromise was, okay, we'll increase the taxes at the time. However, um, if revenue exceeded, it exceeds projected revenue, we'll give back a tax rebate. I guess it's called a rebate refund, I'm not sure. Um, and now we're just talking about this $3.8 billion economic development package, which is now on the governor's desk, which passed both chambers yesterday. Um, given that all, all what the needs of your current constituents and the 57 cities and towns that you're about to become representative for, how do you feel about this tax give back of 13%? So I, I, I guess the problem with it is not that it exists, it's that it takes away the ability for us to do such things in a targeted way. And so with the prices of gas and with the price of oil now and the price of everything going up, we had intended to offer targeted tax breaks to kind of offset, like some people, other states had suggested, or even actually President Biden suggested, just repealing the gas tax, which is, you know, is utterly not worth doing, is not the right way to do it. But making sure people get an offset that was probably more than they were paying in the gas tax or, or, or anything like that was something we were after. And we were engaging in some permanent targeted tax cuts. We were doubling the estate tax from $1 million to $2 million to kind of reflect inf inflation and how things have changed over the past couple of decades and like the prices of homes, especially the eastern part of the state going up. And we were doing some low income tax credits that were going to be permanent. And so because of this mechanism, I wish someone had noticed it in advance. Because of that, we had to set aside the permanent tax cuts. And instead, everybody's just going to get back 13%. So I mean, it'll certainly be an offset of, of the increases that people have been paying at the gas pump or anything like that. But the problem is that when someone that is really, really high income gets back 13% of their income, you're, you know, you're talking about potentially tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And meanwhile, the people that are really going to be hurting the most from the increased price of fuel and the increased price of heating and everything this, this winter, they're not going to get the same benefits that I think we all wanted. So, you know, I, I, w I wish we'd had the opportunity to do it differently. And I think a problem, another problem is, the intention is good. We're a state where we have to have our budget balanced. And so the intention is nice, but a lot of the excess revenue we have is coming in because of ARPA, because of stimulus funding. So, you know, it's not really a fair assessment of how much money the state is taking in, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest with you is, look, I know how lucky we are, my family is, um, that we're, you know, we're in a position where, uh, we're going to be able to pay our, our heating bill. I'm very worried for for people who lack the resources to cover that kind of increase. Food, shelter, heat being much more gasoline, much more expensive for people don't who don't have that that cushion. And um, I, I'm not so sure how I feel about this. I mean, 
I'll accept my 13%, our 13%, but I, I wish it, it didn't exist, to tell you the truth, because uh, I think a wholesome society uh, takes care of the people at the bottom before we we engorge the, those at the top. <laughs> well, and, it, and it, it's, it's likely that we're going to need a significant amount of, of energy assistance over the winter. And I know the vice president was in town yesterday and announced, or Wednesday, excuse me, and announced, you know, a lot of money that's going to come from the federal government, and, and we're going to need every penny of it. And sometimes when the federal government doesn't come through sufficiently, you know, it comes, it comes to the state. And in the past, I've been one of the leads on, on making sure that that low-income eating uh, money is, is, is flowing. So there's, there's always an abundance of need as we look at budgets, as we look at supplemental budgets, as we look at all the funding that we're, we're trying to target and, and, and spend as efficiently and smartly as possible, you know? Yeah, I do. So let's talk about Tuesday. You are on the ballot. Many say democracy is on the ballot. What do people? What does that mean to you when you hear people, including the president, saying that democracy is on the ballot? It means that uh, for the first time in many in any of our lifetimes, and I think for the first time in a very long time in this country, that there's people out there talking about whether they win or lose the election, whether the, no matter what the voice of the people says, that they think they're going to hold on to office or they're going to take office, or if they were to win this election legitimately, that they're going to make sure in the future that the people they think should win in the future are going to win it regardless of what the people say. And I mean, it's, it's, it's the strength and wonder of this country, in spite of any flaws it may have, its greatness has always been that in the end, we respect what the will of the majority and that ability of people to vote, of course, has expanded significantly over the past hundred years, that we, we, we respect the will of what the people are saying. And when you run and you lose, yeah, it would be disappointing, but you have to respect it. If not, why did you run? Like, what do you believe in? And so I hear President, former President Obama in Arizona talking about if some of these people were to win, they're basically challenging the principle, the cornerstone of democracy itself. And I want people out there to remember it's actually not different in Massachusetts, just because it's likely that people who feel like that are going to lose. The woman running for secretary of state on the Republican ticket would would try to put into place the exact same thing. So, I mean, it's it's an issue here. It's just not an issue that's gaining traction, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah, the uh, uh, the man whose name I won't repeat, um, who is running for secretary of state in Arizona, was just videotaped and it was played on last night's news. He videotaped guaranteeing that if he wins secretary of state, Republicans will never lose an election again in Arizona. That's what he was caught saying to this Republican fund uh, at a fundraiser. Um, it was just literally made the hair in the back of my neck stand up like, do you hear yourself? But there you go. There is an exciting uh, grouping that's going to happen. Well, I think within the next half hour or so up in Greenfield. Can you tell us what's going on there, Paul Mark? Yeah, we have uh, Lieutenant Governor nominee Kim Driscoll, currently the mayor of Salem. She's been doing a Western Mass tour today. So I've, I've spent time with her today in Pittsfield. She was talking to some of the local business community uh, in the city of Pittsfield. She was then up in North Adams. She toured Mass Mocha. She did a visit with uh, just the general public in, in, in the city of North Adams. And now she's coming over to Greenfield. And so a couple of weeks ago, some of my colleagues and some other elected officials in town decided that they, I guess they realized they're not going to have me anymore. <laughs> and so they decided that they wanted to do <laughs> kind of a... Kind they of won't a have Paul Mark to kick around anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I said, I'll still have 11,000 Franklin County. But so the, 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 the community, the elected official community of Greenfield, I guess is the nicest way to say it, wanted to do a thank you, wanted to... Uh, have a chance to raise some money for me. I've spent like $75,000, you know, running for office over the past year, which is more than I could have imagined uh, raising uh, ever. Uh, so they want, they, you know, they're trying to help me and give me like a proper send-off as I move over to the Senate. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. It's a really nice gesture. And then somehow they finagled to get Mayor Driscoll uh, involved to give the keynote. And so, you know, what a great opportunity to hopefully meet your new reps if you live in, in Greenfield, because Rep. Blay and Rep. Rep. Whips will both be there uh, to meet, hopefully, who looks like who's the person who's going to be our, our next lieutenant governor. And, you know, if, if, if you want to say hi to me, you want to say bye to me, 
I'd love to see you come on out. It's at the Country Club of Greenfield starting at, at 5. Well, let me just read the list of dignitaries who are going to be there to say thank you for his um, for his more than decade of service in the House of Representatives. There will be Chris Donlan, the Franklin County Sheriff, who was just on our show last Friday. Uh, Roxanne Wiedergartner, who comes for Wiedergartner Wednesday every month on the show. Representative Natalie Blay, she will be there um, on our show next Friday. John Merrigan, uh, the Register of Probate, David Sullivan, Northwestern District Attorney, Susan Amon, Franklin County uh, Superior Court, Clerk of Courts, uh, Scott Cody, the Registrar of Deeds, um, uh, yeah, Susanna Whips, who will now be uh, also not just Eastern Franklin County, but part of part of Greenfield and former city councilor Ashley Stemple, along with Lieutenant Governor candidate for the Democratic Party, Kim Driscoll, who is on a ticket with Maury Healy. That's a pretty impressive group, Paul. It's it's nice. It's it's when I, I looked at some of the primary results in a town like Dalton, I won ninety three percent of the vote. In in Hawley, I won ninety five percent of the vote. And you know that 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 Anyone would like to win that much, but it says a lot to me about the fact that people did appreciate the service that I've given them. And, and when you're talking about serving 11 years in, in the House of Representatives, this is not a nine-to-five job. This is a job where I, I willingly did it, and I, I am grateful for the opportunity I've done it, but I gave a significant portion of my life to serve the people and to have them say to me, yeah, you did a good job. We want more of that is amazing. And so for Greenfield, who didn't have the chance to vote for me, for people there to take the time to offer support, to offer friendship is just amazing and makes, you know, everything, everything you've done feel like it was actually worthwhile, which is, you know, about as good as you can ask for in, in, in any job. That must feel great. And you, I must say, it's well earned. I know how hard you work. Uh, before we go, I just want to ask the question, um, how can if people want to join? They're invited, right? Where is it going to be? It's going to be at five o'clock, and where is it? Yeah, five to seven. It's at the Terrazza Restaurant at the Greenfield Country Club in Greenfield. And uh, I guess look on Facebook or votepalmark.com if you have any additional questions. And you know, it, again, it's great to see everybody, especially if you've been a friend in, in Greenfield. Uh, there's going to be free food, so feel free. Stop by, say hi. And, uh, you know, just again, thank you for the opportunity to serve for the last decade. It's unbelievable. And this is my final question. How are you going to visit 57 constituent municipalities and still hold down a job in Boston? How, do you, how are you going to do that? <laughs> it's, it's already a lot of work. Uh, it's going to be a continued amount of dedicated travel and dedicated hard work. But in the House, I had four different communities we did a form of office hours every single week and so we're going to do that in each region because this 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 district is so big there's actually six regions of the district so weekly we're going to hit every region and then we're going to do something that ben downing used to do when he was a senator which is this idea of the coffee and conversation so he did once a month we have more towns now we have to do it twice a month but we're going to do twice a month one of the smaller towns will have a visit and people will have the opportunity to come through. And I keep saying, if I went to one town a week, I couldn't get there in a year. But with this plan, I can get to every single town for a public appearance at least once per term. And in a district bigger than Rhode Island, with seven you, towns, yeah. I'm sorry. No, I just know you've told me in the past that you love meeting people and you love um, going to towns. And you and I have met on a couple of occasions. You said, let's go to Elmer's because you wanted to be yeah, where yeah. people are. I know that's... Yeah, absolutely. The more people that get to know you, the more likely they are to let you know what's going on, which means the better um, public official, elected official you're going to be, which is important. Paul Meyer, um, I want to thank you for your service. You've been my representative, and uh, I've been quite happy. Um, mm -hmm. I most of my friends uh, uh, with the work that you've done on our behalf, on behalf of our, our friends and neighbors in other communities. I wish you the best of luck on Tuesday, and I'm really looking forward to the next time you come on the show referring to you as Senator Paul Mark. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Paul. When we come back, um, it's a wonderful day because we get to talk to 
Duke Goldman. It is. Uh, we just completed game five of the World Series. Um, I've watched every pitch of four of them, which is really something special. But we're going to talk about something uh, a little bit different here. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about uh, concussions and health and football. And we're going to do that with Duke right after these messages. Please stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte in for Jess Tyler. Today is the last day for in-person early voting for the upcoming midterm elections. The Votes Act, passed by the Massachusetts legislature over the summer, made pandemic-era changes permanent by expanding access to early voting, mail-in voting, and absentee ballots across the Commonwealth. However, for some small towns, the additional election responsibilities have proven to be a heavy burden. Shutesbury town clerk Gray Spinash told WHMP that the required minimum number of hours a town must be open for early voting exceeds the number of hours she's able to work in a single week. Small towns are asking the state for more support during election season with these additional responsibilities. Meanwhile, armed vigilantes guarding ballot drop boxes in Maricopa County in Arizona are adding to the growing sense of polarization at the polls. Here's Grace Panache. This is a form of voter intimidation that is having a national effect because voters don't belong to just one community. We have roots and relationships everywhere. And as Americans, we're affected by what happens in other states. While no excuse early voting ends Friday, in-person absentee voting will be available until 12 p.m. Monday, November 7th to those who qualify. Polls will be open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. on November 8th for all voters who have not already cast a ballot by Election Day. Prosecutors believe they've arrested the man responsible for the 1966 murder of a 10-year-old girl from Chicopee. The cold case came to a close when 73-year-old Donald Mars made significant statements related to the murder. Mars was arraigned in Hamden Superior Court yesterday morning and appeared in poor health. Hi, I'm Nick Oresco. Partly cloudy and mild tonight with lows in the low to mid 50s. Warm and dry this weekend with temperatures in the low to mid 70s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. We speak not of the princes and prelates and periwig charioteers riding triumphantly laureled to lap the fat of the years. Rather, we speak of the maimed, of the halt, of the blind in the rain and the cold. Of these shall my songs be fashioned and tales be told. And we do that every day at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, DESE is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Hello, I'm Sheriff Patrick Kaling, and I'm honored to be the Democratic nominee for Hampshire County Sheriff. I hope you will stay with me and vote Kaling in the general election. Early voting starts on October 22nd, and Election Day is November 8th. And remember, a vote for me is a vote for a kind, compassionate, and progressive future for corrections in Hampshire County. This ad was paid for by the committee to elect Patrick J. Cahillane. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. I am so excited. I'm always excited about fair play. I get to talk to Duke Goldman, the sports historian and writer and observer extraordinaire. Um, And uh, right now it's, hey, 
does it get any better than this? It is a World Series. And um, as I usually do to a few people, this time I only did it to um, Duke and I think to Monty Belmonte, to Dan Torres, uh, my buddy, and uh, Bill Newman. And I said, Houston in five before the first game, to which Duke wrote, well, I understand because Houston is the more talented team. However, Philadelphia is peaking at just the right time. And mere hours later, Philadelphia won in the 10th inning, coming from behind, winning 6-5. to five, And I was like, man, that guy knows his baseball. Duke, you set me back a little bit. But now it might not be Houston in five, but they're leading three games to two, aren't they? They are. Um, Houston's the better team. I don't think there's any question of that. They, you know, won 106 games, and, the, and Phillies won only 87. They have a deeper team, a better defensive team, which they demonstrated in game five with an excellent defensive play by Trey Mancini, who was a replacement for uh, Guriel, who had gotten injured at first base and made a great stop. And then Chaz McCormick in the center field in the ninth inning made a fabulous play. They have an incredible bullpen. Uh, they're just a very deep team. Having said that, it's still anybody's game. Um, which is why we watch this. The last game was why we watched the World Series. I mean, the previous games were good games, but usually one team was dominant. Yes, the first game uh, was a nail-biter in the 10th inning, although Houston had come out to a 5 nothing lead, and then Phillies came back to tie. Last game was a nail-biter from the first pitch, um, and Houston prevailed 3-2. to Now they're going back to Houston, and um, I think Houston – He's got to be the likely team to win game six. They've got Framber Valdez, who's a top-notch starter, pitching against uh, Zach Wheeler. Zach Wheeler, they held back for an extra day because he was losing velocity. Um, and they're back in Houston. Uh, so I think there's a good chance Houston will win game six. If they do not, game seven kind of switches back to Philly, where uh, Houston would have to pitch Lance McCullers, who gave up five home runs the other day, to Philly. So, you know? That's why we watch. I I love it. And last night, uh, what, what, there's a number of things when I'm watching that just send me back to my baseball playing days. But I love to go back to my little league playing days. and Not the ones where you're throwing the ball wildly and it's just ridiculous. Little kids can't play baseball that well. I'm talking about like when in sixth grade, uh, seventh grade, when you're playing pretty well, there was a rundown between third and home last night. That sends me right back to where I used to, you know, where we tried to catch somebody between bases and, and we sort of played, you know, monkey see, monkey do with each other. I love that. Well, my re recollection of rundowns for me growing up was we would just throw the ball back until somebody would throw it wild and the runner would score. In the <laughs> pros, they're a little bit better at that. And rarely, if ever, does anybody, you know, make it through a rundown um, and they didn't. Uh, last night either. Hey, Duke. Yeah, I remember Rick Anderson did it once, and I was like astonished at how he was able to outrun that. But um, most most of us can't. So anyway, so um, I really wanted to turn my attention to to uh, football, um, and you've been looking at. Um, well, why don't you tell us what you've been looking at? So uh, there was an AP story uh, October twenty second which piqued my interest. There is a trial that started, I haven't seen anything since, but my assumption is it's still ongoing in a concussion case of a USC, University of South, Southern California football player who died, who apparently died from brain damage caused by repetitive, probably sub-concussive, because this is what the current science is. It's not as much these these times where a football player gets slammed to the ground and, and is, you know, woozy. It's the accumulative impact of repeated hits. Um, so I'm assuming in this case, even a college player who never went on to the pros ended up dying. There was brain damage. And there is a trial, only the second time that there was a wrongful death or a personal injury lawsuit going to trial with regard to college football. And that meant, led me to say, gee, I wonder where all of this is. Um, I had read a book 
some years ago came out in 2013 called League of Denial. And the league in question is the National Football League. It's a book by two gentlemen named Mark Finarawada and Steve Finaro, brothers. One of them had written the book about Balco and the steroid scandal. So they are investigative reporters. And I reread the book and it just reminded me of what the NFL has done and not done to deal with the reality that football, the playing of football causes brain damage, pure and simple. Yeah, well, there was that settlement, right? That uh, yeah. fairly substantial settlement. There was a substantial settlement, something like $780 million of a major class action that was brought, again, around 2012 to 2013. Um, and the devil is in the details because apparently this settlement sets up a procedure for football players to apply for money if they can demonstrate severe disability and only about 30% of the players are winning their cases. Um, and in fact, the settlement had to be changed because the NFL was using something called race norming. In other words, they were making it harder for African-American football players to prove that they had cognitive decline because they were using some calculus that indicated that um, uh, African-Americans had a lower base from which to measure cognitive decline, which meant less of them could prove cognitive decline. And this was then built into the original settlement and the NFL was forced to change their procedure. But in the process, what was discovered is that even the people who manage this process on the part of the players are questionable in how they handle it and whether they're really um, doing the best for the players. And um, still the case that a lot of football players who have lived miserable, miserable post-career lives are struggling to get, you know, compensation for what they've gone through. And, you know, where, where I'm at is looking at this and saying, you know, I admittedly, I'm, I'm not a football fan. Not anymore. I used to be. But I think people who are football fans have to think about this and question what they are rooting for. What is American football but a barbaric sport, a brutal sport, a misnamed sport, right? Why is the sport named football? It is not a sport having to do with feet primarily. You know, uh, the other day, Ray Guy died. He was the first NFL punter to get into the Hall of Fame. There is one punter in the Hall of Fame. There's a couple of kickers, but not many. The foot is not a primary element of football. Football is really soccer, right? What we call soccer. And American football is, in fact, the only major sport in the world, at least that I can think of, that is played on one continent and one continent only in this world, right? We are the country, the North American continent, America and Canada play football. And football should really be called attack ball. It's, it's a warlike sport. It is a sport of platoons who go into en enemy territory and who line up against each other, these massive behemoths, and they destroy each other's bodies. Yeah, so I just want to, before we take a break, we're going to be talking to Duke Goldman, and I, I want to continue this important conversation. And, and first of all, by disclosing that I love to watch football to guess who's going to be doing what. It's such an easy sport for television. It's television friendly because you don't see the brutality that, that Duke is describing. What we're talking about with respect to these injuries is called CTE. It's chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It's a degenerative brain disease. And the process that Duke was referring to is one in which they haven't really worked hard enough to be able to track the degeneration of brain tissue. And it's, it's not just cognitive impairment. There's emotional impairment. There's uh, physical impairment. People slobber uh, as a result of it. It's, 
it, it's a brutal, brutal, traumatic injury. Dude. And um, the question is whether or not it can be prevented and when recognized, should it be compensated uh, by the most uh, financially successful league on the globe. We're going to be back with Duke Goldman to talk more about this important issue and what role race plays in it right after this. Stay with us. is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMT. Gordon Oliver here, so let's face it, our day-to-day -day lives always involve money, right? For many of us, money is always top of mind, but here at The Cambridge Connection, we want to help you reverse that trend. Every Saturday morning at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP, my co-pilot, Tina Marie, and I bring you a variety of amazing experts who can help you navigate that daily financial maze of life and guide you to a better relationship with your money. This week, Gordy and Tina Marie go deep on the what's and why's of insurance with Justin Doyle, licensed insurance agency agent with New York Life. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Josh is marching to honor his late father-in-law, who loved walking and cared deeply about fighting for communities. The old folks at the Lathrop community are teaming up with the young folks at Hilltown Charter and forming a team together. Molly hosted an accordion-themed bingo night to support the food bank. Different is good. The March for the Food Bank 13 is almost here, but it's not too late to get involved in any weird and wacky way that suits you. There's still time to start a team in March. Support a team. Come up with your own crazy event. Each dollar raise provides four healthy and nutritious meals for our neighbors in need. The Food Bank provided almost 12 million meals last year. If we can raise a half a million dollars together, that'll mean two million meals for our neighbors who rely on emergency food next year. Join Monty's March for the Food Bank 13, 43 miles from Springfield to Greenfield, Monday and Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, November 21st and 22nd, montysmarch.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with sports historian, sports writer, Duke Goldman, and Duke is talking about um, a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that CTE that um, is a subject of an, a lawsuit involving uh, USC and the NCAA um, from a deceased 49-year-old whose spouse um, is making claims for damages because his uh, brain deterioration 
pending his death was, she claims, the result of injuries, I think, from the Rose Bowl and other games that happened 20, 30 years ago, I think. But, um, Duke, I wanted to ask you why, I know your primary focus, you're a profoundly expert um, historian on the Negro Leagues and on baseball in general. How is football different in terms of degenerative brain disease and, and traumatic injury than every other sport that we love to watch? Well, football is much more like boxing than any other sport. Boxing is where the first diagnoses of this kind of traumatic brain injury happen. They used to call this, the CTE was originally referred to as dementia pugilistica, right? Uh, football is the closest to that. In football, there is an infliction of damage on every single play. There is a drill called the nutcracker that is used in football training camps, has been used historically, where they set up a, a practice play and they have an offensive lineman and a de defensive lineman lined up. They snap the ball, but really what it's all about is two guys cracking heads against each other. And when you think about it, it's really a platoon of players on both sides who are doing this in every single play. And I don't know how much of the audience saw this. I don't watch football, but I played today the play in which Tua, Tua I can't get his last name right. Tua, Tua, Tua Tungavaloa. Tua, yeah. Tua Valoa, uh, you know, hit the turf with the back of his head slamming against the turf. and. To see that, that kind of thing just generally doesn't happen. Yes, there's an occasional play in baseball where a player gets hit in the head with a ball or hits their head against the turf, you know, or, or occasionally there's even collisions in the outfield. But it is not with nearly degree of the intensity uh, or the frequency with which it happens in football. So, Duke, I, I had a question for you. Uh, that I hear sure. oftentimes uh, when I make similar statements to what you're making about the the risks uh, inherent to football is, hey, these are grown people who are adults who are uh, know the risks and they're taking on the risk. What do you say to that? There is truth to that. They are taking on the risks. Having said that, the National Football League denied the risks for so many years. Um, they wrote a concussion paper in which they said, in our opinion, this was in 2006, it is unlikely that athletes who rise to the level of the NFL are concussion prone. In other words, suggesting that, you know, if they're really skilled, they know how to avoid concussions. Now, that's really problematic, that the NFL would deny reality. Um, they have denied, they are much like... Um, tobacco companies, and much like the pharmaceutical companies who've tried to avoid responsibility. So do players have their own responsibility? Yes, although many of them are coming from situations where they're looking for something out of their difficult lifestyles to improve themselves. And I think it's incumbent upon the NFL and the colleges who are making all that much money to do a much better job than they're doing revealing the damage that is involved in protecting players. And th th there is great doubt that they're ever going to be able to successfully protect players. They were using a helmet called the Guardian helmet during training camp, kind of a bubblish helmet. And what I've read is that most of the studies suggest that no helmet can really prevent a concussion. That the problem that causes this brain damage is the brain is like jello and it jiggles around. And even if you put a strong helmet, when you have that, those kinds of G-forces going, uh, acting between players, they're still gonna be jiggling around no matter how strong the helmet is. So the players are vulnerable at all times. And we then also have coaches who send the players back in. And uh, Tua was, in, the first time that Tua um, uh, had caused damage to himself about a month ago, they sent him back in in the second half. And they had to change the NFL protocol uh, because he was, I saw this, he was stumbling around and he was then playing half an hour later. Something is wrong with the way they govern this. Well, and adding to it, I mean, you led by talking about the, the Matthew Gee case, his, his uh, surviving spouse 
is asking for a couple of million dollars from USC and from um, the NCAA. And what the defense is there is a defense that we heard for so long from the NFL, which is uh, it, it turns out that Mr. Gee, after he's, he suffered injury, he was diagnosed with a traumatic um, brain injury, and then he became a drinker. And he used drugs and he had some then other health problems developed and he died at the age of 49. The NCAA said, oh, the reason why he died is because of his drinking and his drugs, where every expert who had seen him said those were all consequences of him, just the absolute uh, despondency that he fell into because he couldn't think, he couldn't remember things. He could not remember his wife's name on occasion. So. I think that uh, the league response is really important. Uh, why do you think it's disproportionately applied to, uh, based on race, this insensitivity? We live in a racist society. We still live in a racist society. And when it comes right down to it, the powers that be in the NFL are more than willing to throw black players under the bus if it's a way to cut back on how much they have to pay in settlements. And this was a convenient methodology and they employed it until they were forced to stop. And that just keeps happening in our society over and over again until there is enough pressure put upon to stop racist practices, they don't stop. Would you ban football if you were president of the world? No, I wouldn't ban it. I would, I would say people need to be fully cognizant of what they're doing when they're watching it. You know, if Roman citizens went to the Coliseum to watch gladiators kill each other, if people want to do it, fine, but admit that that's what you're doing. Admit that you are watching a sport that is a blood sport, okay? And our society has to grapple with it. I want to see people talk about this and discuss how they feel about it. And if enough people decide and the system continues to be one where there is a league and the games sell out and there's, there's you know, football contracts, you know, for media and the NFL continues to be the most, you know, successful sport, I guess it's going to continue. I'm not, I'm not ready to ban it, but I want more people to discuss what it is. Well, in the 30 seconds we have left, I just want to point out that FIFA has all this evidence of soccer players because of heading the ball having injury and the recommendation is have them wear a helmet what do you say about that i i, I if it can help i don't see why not and you know i i think we have to think about whether football should be i'd be more inclined to ban football let's say below the age of 14 or something like that or mm -hmm. it says that it can only be touch football below the age of 14. yep flag football great idea Duke, I so look forward to Fair Play, the segment that we have on Friday afternoons. And um, I think that you've really given us something to think seriously about. Meanwhile, enjoy the World Series. You as well. All right. Thanks for joining us. Everybody else, thank you for joining us. Have a great weekend. It's going to be a spring-like weather. Dan, enjoy your weekend. You too, Buzz. All right. Bye-bye. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. People like pink ladies. Macintosh and McCowns are popular. Red Delicious is the old standby. Gala, the new darling. Some people swear by Honeycrisp. And who doesn't love Granny Smith? Appling at River Valley Co-op, all the greatest hits. Plus, heirlooms like Carrie's Irish Pippin and Belle de Boscoop. With 50 varieties of apples, you never know. There's an heirloom called Sops of Wine? Really? Hooray, hooray, an apple a day. River Valley Co-op, wild about local apples. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's